So we're going to just dig into the Word of God. I know if you've been with us the past few months, you know, we've been going through the, the sermons in Acts. So we haven't been going through everything in Acts. We've been going through the sermons of Acts and seeing how the message of the gospel was preached to a world that hadn't heard it. First to the, the Jewish people who were hearing the gospel um, presented as the fulfillment of what the law and the prophets had led them to. The, the continuation of what God had did, the story he was writing. You know, the Jewish people were being told, this is the Messiah we've been waiting for. One of the challenging things for them was that beginning to understand that the prophets had said the Messiah would suffer. In their mind, the Messiah was just going to come and kick butt. The Messiah was going to be like an action hero. He's like Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's like Rambo. He's just going to go and he's going to take over. He's going to kick the Romans out and he's going to make us, make us the new rulers. So Jesus had to go through his disciples and say on the road to Emmaus, didn't you know that the Messiah would have to suffer? Didn't the scripture say that? Later on, Peter said, didn't, didn't the scripture say that God would not abandon his soul to the grave. He said, now you think that's talking about David, but he goes, I hate to be blunt, but David's rotten in the ground right now. So he must not have been talking about David. He had to be talking about someone else. And they laid that case for the Jewish people that, that, that Jesus is the Messiah, not just the Messiah, but the risen Lord, the risen king. But then again, God begins to bring them, and, and you have some oddballs from Cyprus and Cyrene that start to preach to other people, not just Jewish people. They start to preach to Greeks, something the church still hasn't decided if we're allowed to do that. And they start to say, God's moving and God's hands on it. The church of Antioch in Syria uh, uh, begins out of that movement of preaching to the Jews and the Greeks alike. And the, the apostles, they send Barnabas down and they say, Barnabas, go check it out because Barnabas was a good man. He was full of faith in the spirit. So they send Barnabas down and Barnabas says, this is a move of God. It says he observed the grace of God. When you observe the grace of God, it doesn't mean you fully understand what's going on. It just means you recognize that God is doing this. This isn't a move of people. This isn't something that people are making happen. This is a move of God. Barnabas has recognized this, and he says, you know who needs to be here? It's my new buddy Paul, or Saul, as he was known still amongst the Hebrew believers. So he goes, and he sends for him, and they, they minister together. And then out of that, the apostles and the prophets, they gather in Antioch, and they have a prayer meeting. They start to fast and pray, and something happens out of that meeting as they're ministering to the Lord. God speaks to them and says, take these two guys, Paul and Barnabas, and send them out for the work of my ministry. And the first missionary journey started right there. Now, the first missionaries were accidental missionaries, like those guys from Cyprus and Cyrene, like, like Philip. They were all just running away from Jerusalem because, ironically, it was Paul that was causing them so much trouble. And so the first missionaries weren't trying to be missionaries. They're just trying to survive. But no matter where they went, their default setting is we preach the gospel. This is, this is important for us to remember is that your default setting has got to be I preach the gospel. If, you're, if your world gets shaken, if, you're, if your job changes, if you move, if you whatever happens, if you can just say no matter what's going on in the world, I'm going to preach the gospel. Now, we found out what we were made of in the last two, three years because things shifted, things changed. And we found out if our default setting was we preach the gospel, we live what we believe. Does it change when society shifts? Does it change when church looks a little bit different for a while? Does that change or can we still preach the gospel? 
So these guys kept preaching the gospel. You see what happens. They preach the gospel everywhere they go. And then suddenly the door is being opened. Peter hears a, sees a vision from God where he is sent to a Roman centurion's house of all people, the bad guy, the villain. But this guy's a good Roman centurion. He's been giving to the Jews. He's a man of prayer. He's a man of giving. God opens the door to Cornelius, this Italian guy, and all of his garlicky friends, and, and, and opens the door for the gospel. Thank God for the Italians. I eat so much better because of the Italians. I have so much more pounds on me because of the Italians, and I'm thankful for them. But God opened, God used those Italians to open the door to the rest of us. I don't know how many uh, Jewish people we have ethnically that you say, that's my heritage, that's where I was born from. But I know most of us would probably say we're Gentiles. We didn't come from a Jewish background. We came from a, a other nations. And so I'm so thankful when I read these stories about how God opened it up. And something that happened, and we're going to read about it in Acts chapter 15. This sermon is probably the first one we're going to read that was not preached to unbelievers. In fact, it's not a, you might say it's not a sermon at all, but I'm going to think of it that way. I see it that way. In Acts 15, we're going to find one of the greatest miracles that happened in the book of Acts. Many people don't even know it was a miracle. See, I, I thank God for the eyes that were being opened. I thank God for the lame that walked. I thank God for the dead that were raised. But in Acts chapter 15, we see a miracle of reconciliation amongst the church. I don't know if you've read this and realized it, but this chapter, right in the smack in the middle of Acts, threatened to divide the whole church, to, to break down the, the entire church. This could have been the end of the church as we knew it. There was a huge division. There was a huge uh, uh, schism that, that didn't seem like it was going to be an easy fix. We see hints of it in Galatians. We'll read that in a minute. But in Acts chapter 15, let's actually, I want to start in Acts 14 because I think that adds some context that will help you. So we left off last week with Paul and Barnabas preaching in Lystra, preaching, uh, we, we talked a little bit, skipped ahead a bit to their, their message in Athens, but preaching to Gentiles, pre preaching to Greeks. And as they came back, it says in Acts chapter 14, they passed through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia, and when they'd spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. Okay, so everybody knows where all these places are, right? You know, you don't need any help, we're good. You're picturing it in your mind, you're like, I've been to all those places. No, for, for, for many of us, we hear that and we go, okay, you might as well just be throwing darts at a map. That doesn't mean anything to me. Well, they're journeying down, okay, so they're coming back down. Here's what happens. As they're going, they sailed to Antioch. So like I've told you before, there's like 15 or 16 Antiochs at the time. Super confusing. The Antioch they're going back to is the church that sent them out, Syrian Antioch, okay? So this is Antioch in Syria. It's still, you can still go to Turkey and visit this place right now. Like I said, I've got a, a, a friend whose son plays, plays soccer at a, at a team in this city of Antioch in Turkey today. And someday maybe I'll get to visit it. But they go back to Antioch, which was now, lots of historians call this the cradle of Christianity. Because it was in this place that Christianity, really, this is the first place they were called Christians. And, and some, God just did some amazing things. So they go back to Antioch, the church that sent them out from which they'd been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. Isn't it nice to come back from a missionary trip and say, it went well? 
Now, whether you say it went well is all about your perspective. Because on this missionary trip, he was stoned to death. So what's your version of it went well, right? How many times did you almost die? Well, a couple. We were beaten a couple times, too. We're thrown in prison. Man, I'm good. But it went well. Overall, other than that, it was pretty good. They said, you know, we, they said they accomplished. They fulfilled the work God sent them to do. Man, I wish we had that perspective more, hey? Like, like, how was your day? Oh, it was rough. Did you accomplish what God sent you to do today? Well, yeah, but it was rough. Well, good. You accomplished it. Praise God. That's a good day. But I was real sleepy. Somebody cut me off in a trap. Somebody honked at me. I hate when people honk at me. If you ever see me out there and you want to say, hi, Jonathan, I don't see you, don't honk at me. Because I like, it, it takes me a while to get back in the spirit after that. I mean, like, like what's your problem? So the first look, if you're like, hi, Jonathan, honk, and I look over, I'm probably going to look very, like, uncomfortable with you for a minute. Just, just a note. But if all that happens and you're going, well, it wasn't a very good day, did you accomplish what God sent you to do? I've been on trips in some pretty crazy places and had to deal with some pretty crazy situations. And you go, we didn't have a good place to sleep. We didn't know if we had food to eat. You don't even want to talk about where we had to go to the bathroom. But man, did God do some great things. See, if that's your perspective, that's the divine's perspective. That's the perspective Jesus had when he said, in the world you'll have trouble, but in me you have peace. He didn't say, it's not an either or. You're going to be in the world, but you're going to be in me in the world. In me in the world. So even though there's trouble in the world, you're in me and you have peace in the midst of the trouble all around you. It's not able to steal your peace. Here's what he says. They fulfilled the work that God had sent them to do. And listen to this. When they arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all the things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. I want you to see that God opened the door. They didn't pry it open. They didn't make it happen. God opened a door of faith. Nobody could have done this in their own flesh. God did it. And they spent a long time with the disciples. But some men, this is chapter 15, verse 1, some men came down from Judea and they began teaching the brethren. So when we talk about brethren, we're talking about the believers, brothers and sisters. We're talking about the, the church. Unless, and remember, this is Antioch. So Antioch is mostly a Gentile church. These are mostly, they didn't come from Jewish backgrounds. To be blunt, they're not circumcised. Most of them are coming from a pagan background. They got born again. They've followed the one true God. They believed in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, risen King. This is what they believe. But they haven't become Jewish. They've become Christian. And this is the point of contention. Because to most of the church, to be Jewish and Christian aren't two separate things. You know, they didn't feel that they left Judaism to follow Jesus, right? Because Jesus was the fulfillment of everything in the scriptures. So for a Jew, you're not leaving Judaism. You're just believing in the Messiah, right? You're believing the scripture. Jesus said, you should have searched the scriptures and found me. They speak of me. So to these people, it wasn't like they left their faith. They continued their faith. So for them, all they know is that Christianity is is an offshoot, Christianity is a continuation of the root of Judaism. It's the root of the Torah. It's the root of the law and the prophets. They see Jesus saying, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. So this is, this is not them trying to be bad people. They're just saying, 
well, Jesus is the Messiah, so in order to become Christian, you have to do what we did. We, we were Jews that became Christian. You have to become a Jew. This is what they said. They said, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, then you can't be saved. I don't know how, how you guys feel about being circumcised as adults. I don't feel great about it. It's one thing when a baby doesn't know any better. It's another thing when you're like 40. <laughs> like the Bible says, Paul said to Timothy, Paul circumcised him with his own hand. That's doubly trouble for me. Because <laughs> you're a grown man. And then this guy that's definitely not a doctor <laughs> is doing this work on me. And we're not going to get any more detailed than that. That's how, as far as we're going. So when they say you got to be circumcised, they're not just talking about circumcision. They're talking about everything that goes along with it. You have to eat kosher. You have to celebrate the Sabbath like we do. You have to, and reason, think about this. This is not something new because the, the Jewish faith had a system for proselytes. They had, uh, they, God had laid out, here's what happens when a Gentile comes to, the, to Judaism. They had a way to welcome them in and say, uh, if you were a Gentile that, that believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you could become a Jew. Now, you might not be ever on the same level as the natural born ones, but there was like a, a system. You could, you could convert. And so they just assumed in order to be a Christian, you got to do that. And they said, Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. You can't be saved. What did Barnabas do when he came to this church? He saw the grace of God. What did Peter do when he went to Cornelius' house? He preached, and they started praying in tongues. He goes, they're filled with the Spirit. How can we deny them water? They're already saved. You see, these people were able to recognize, I don't know how they got saved, but they're obviously saved. They're like, God's here. These guys walked into that church and did not, didn't look at the grace of God. Can you imagine? This has been years now that these people have been believers. They've had fruit coming out of their life. They've been baptizing people. They've been seeing people ha hailed, no, saved, healed, and delivered. They've seen God move, and now somebody's telling them they're not even saved. That might be offensive. And these people are wrong. In verse 2, and when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, because Paul and Barnabas, they feel some sense of like, these are our, these are our kids, we look after these, these, this is the church we started with. The brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning the issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they were bringing great joy to all the brethren. Because that's what the gospel does. It brings great joy. And when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees. Now these guys can't stop causing trouble, can they? Now these are, these are still believers, as far as I know. They've come to believe in Jesus, but they're still hanging on to some tradition. Some of them who had believed. So they're no longer opposing Jesus. They believed in Jesus, but they're pretty strict with, their, with their, their tradition. They said it's necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. Now I want you to put a ribbon or a finger there or uh, whatever you do on your iPhone. And I want you to just go with me real quick to Galatians chapter 2. We're going to take a little parentheses break here. And I want you to see Paul's perspective of what was happening. Now, 
there's what's described in Galatians 2 is a visit to Jerusalem that I think came before this one. Paul describes in Galatians two visits to Jerusalem. And in Acts, we see that this one that we're reading about is the third visit. So I think, this is just me, but I believe that what's, ha- what's being described in Galatians 2 is actually happening, be- happening before what we just read. And you'll see why I think that in a minute because I-, I think a big part of it is how Peter responds. But in Galatians chapter 2, I want you to see some of this same thing that's been cropping up. Uh, let's see verse 9. It says, recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas, and Cephas is just another word for for Peter, okay? So that's his Aramaic name that Jesus gave him. What's confusing about reading these stories and in the verses we're going to read is there's like four different names that he's going to get called. His, His birth name is Simon. The Jewish bros call him Simeon. Jesus said, your name's not Simon anymore, which means read. Your name is Cephas, which is rock. That's Aramaic for rock. And then we write the Greek New Testament and translate rock into Greek, which is Petros. And so he becomes known as Peter. So if we're talking about Peter, Cephas, Simon, Simeon, we're all talking about the same guy. Can, so everybody lock that in your brain. That'll help you. Because if you're like, well, which one is this now? All right. So James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, they perceived the grace that was given to me. Once again, there's that word or the phrase, that they saw the grace, they perceived the grace. They may not have known why or how, but they knew it was God, so they said, we can't stop God. And Peter had also been used to minister to the Gentiles, so hopefully he's logging that away. It says, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So they made a deal. You guys go to the Gentiles, we're going to reach the Jews. In verse 10, They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was also eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. One translation of this could be he stood self-condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. Remember, Peter was the first guy, first of the apostles rather, that really reached out to the Gentiles. And God made it happen. Remember how God did it? God brought a Cajun meal from the sky. Do you remember that? It said, all these things you're not allowed to eat. Creepy, crawly things, shellfish, all of that. Eat it. Kill and eat it. Peter says, I can't do that, Lord. I'm a good Jew. I would never touch that stuff. If this is a test, I pass. And the Lord says, you do not pass. Do what I say. Kill and eat it. He goes, ah, Lord. And God had to do that three times before Peter finally agreed. Because what God said to him was, what I've cleansed. You're not allowed to call unclean. Another way to say it is what I've made holy. You're not allowed to call common. And he wasn't really, this message wasn't just about food. It really wasn't about food at all. It was about people. Because right at the door, after that last vision, three men are at the door saying, our boss, the Italian centurion, the Roman centurion, sent us to go get you. An angel appeared and said, go get this guy. God told him, God told Peter, those men are going to come to your door. You're going to go with them without misgivings. So Peter's, con- Peter's movement to preaching to the Gentiles started with food. S- and he's been eating with them. I don't know if you've recognized this because in North America we've lost this to a degree. But eating with people is really important. 
very important. I'm not saying we don't have this because I know many of you, this is your tradition. This is what you do. But I know that, that now, you know, look in my neighborhood, everybody pulls into the garage and they shut the garage and they go in their house. There's a separation. Uh, but the gospel is, is not just something we preach. It's something we live. And the family of God doesn't just happen in the lobby of the church. It happens in homes over tables. And, and as, we, as we break bread together, as we, as we eat and drink and laugh together and talk about the things of God, this is when, when, when the gospel and this is when uh, the family of God really begins to live and move and breathe. And so eating together is really important in the Bible. Scientists tell us that, that when you eat, your brain releases certain chemicals that say this is a good thing, and you bond with the people you're eating with. You're enjoying it. Your brain says, I'm enjoying this. And when you're enjoying that with other people, you bond with them, which is one of the reasons that the Scripture tells us there's a, there was a certain group of people causing trouble, and they said, don't even eat with those people. Because there were certain people, they said, you, you know, these are people that should know better and aren't doing better, and they're causing trouble in the church. Just don't eat with those people. They took it seriously who you ate with. And part of the original uh, uh, plan of the church, the way they were thriving and growing, is that they were eating together regularly. They were fellowshipping together. They were breaking bread together. Now, that means the Lord's table as well. But I believe they were taking meals together. That's what the scripture says. So they're doing this. And then Peter has been eating with the Gentiles. But when these guys come from James. Now, James, <laughs> once again, there's a lot of Jameses in the Bible. This James is the brother of Jesus. Now, come on, guys. This is also the James that didn't believe in Jesus when Jesus was walking around. But what happened? Paul told us that after Jesus was resurrected, he appeared to over 500 believers. And he appeared to Peter, and he appeared to James. And he's talking about this James. And something happened when the resurrected Savior appeared to his half-brother James. James believed. James became a big part of the church. James was not one of the disciples. He wasn't one of the original apostles. But you know what? He became a leader in the church. The other James that we know so well, the brother of John, his head's been chopped off. He's not in the picture. So this is the brother of Jesus, and it says, the problem with the brother of Jesus is that he's pretty firm on this, you got to be Jewish thing. And so when these guys come from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and he separated himself. My Bible says he held himself aloof, like he kind of backed off. You ever felt yourself do that? You ever feel yourself separating from the people God put you together with? Well, you go, oh, I'm still coming on Sunday. I'm still volunteering every now and then, but you're drawing away from people. You're sitting separate. You're moving separate. You're not talking to them. You're rushing out the door. You're all those things. I realize sometimes you got to run. But I know what it's like to, to subconsciously or consciously begin to separate myself from people. Either because you got a problem with them or somebody else has a problem with them. And you begin to let the bond of the spirit become weaker than your own ego, your own pride. Your own fear. Peter begins to withdraw, not because he doesn't love them, but because he's afraid of what these people think. The Bible says the fear of people is a snare. It'll trap you. If you care about your reputation more than you care about the pleasure of God, if you care about pleasing people more than you care about pleasing and glorifying God, it will trap you, it will make you miserable, and it will sabotage what God has for your life. Peter began to withdraw, not because he thought it was God, but because these guys intimidated him and he separated himself 
Does it say he was fearing the Lord? Who's he fearing? Circumcision party. I'm going to tell you. That's a rough name if you're going to run for office. <laughs> Not going to get a lot of votes out of side one little block. <laughs> if you're, if you, I mean, come on. In Alberta, anything's possible. I could, I could see that. Uh, <laughs> you know, amount, the amount of phone calls and texts we've all been getting in the last month, you know. If somebody said I'm from the circumcision party, I'd say, of course you are. Yeah, I figured you were. Figured you'd call. <laughs> Which one are you on the debate stage? One of the 50 that stands up there. All right. But he fears them. He's worried about what they think. It says the, result, the, res- the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy. In hypocrisy. Why is it hypocrisy? Because they know what God said. And the own integrity of their spirit, they know what God said to them. They know what they believed. They were hypocrites because they feared people more than God. Even Barnabas, oh wow, even Barnabas was carried away by that hypocrisy. You see, with, inside the church, the enemy has been working. So much so that the two, one of, two of the original apostles that really reached out, I don't know if you want to call Barnabas an apostle, but I think you could, Two of the originals that really reached out to the Gentiles have been taken out because of fear. Division in the church, and he was led astray. So Paul, the little pit bull that he was, opposes Peter to his face. Not because he wants to be right, but because he loves Peter and he loves the church enough to say, you're standing condemned right now. I can't let you go on like this, brother. When I saw that they were not straightforward... Or, in other words, they didn't stay on the straight path with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas, in the presence of all. Oh, man, this is going to get awkward. In the presence of all, I said, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles. I know you still eat shrimp. You still live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews. How is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? In other words, Peter, I know that you've, God's, God's, taught you some things about what to keep and what to move on from, and you're, you've, you've, you're not living like you used to live, and now you're forcing them to live that way. He says, we're Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles, but nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we might be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. His point is, whether you're a Jew or Gentile, we all had to get saved the same way. And it wasn't what we did, following the right rituals or all that. It was believing in Jesus. So if you're telling them they're not saved, you're telling them they have to do this to get saved, you are nullifying what God has already done in their life. Now let's get back to Acts 15, and we're going to begin to bring this all together. Acts 15, verse 6 says, the apostles and the elders, they came together to look into this matter. And after there'd been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, here's one of the reasons I think that this visit came after what we just read. Because now Peter's on the right side of history. Now, I don't even like the phrase right side of history because that presumes that history is moving in the right direction. I think you can study history enough to know it moves in all directions. 
And there's times we move forward, there's times we move backwards. So, but he's in the right side of God's perspective, let's just say that. Peter stood up and said, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. Hear that. I didn't make the choice. God made the choice. Remember I told you that this chapter could have been the end of the church. You had a group that said, we believe God wants to save the Gentiles. You had a group that said, they'll have to become Jews first. This could have split the whole church up. This could have been the difference between you being a, a believer or not. This could have changed. This could have hijacked what God was doing. But thank God, God's bigger. And what happens instead is we're going to see a miracle. We're going to see people that disagree. We're going to see people that are probably upset, mad at each other, that choose to stand together, sit together in the room and talk and listen until they know what God says. Because the point of this is it's not about what Peter thinks. It's not about what Paul thinks. It's not about what James thinks. It's not about what any of them think. It's what God says. So they're all going to sit back and listen to people they disagree with and say, by the end of this, I'm not leaving this room until we find out what God says about this. Now, your marriage will be a lot better if that's the way you approach life. There's no back door for me. I'm not leaving. We're in this together. Now, I know sometimes you need to take a break, walk away, pray, calm down, chill, squeeze your stress ball. I get it. But me and Tia, we know there's no back door. We're together. So if we're having a really big disagreement, I can't just say, I'm leaving you forever. I'm probably never going to say, I'm leaving you for the night. We're just going to stick it out. And we're not going to let the sun go down on our anger. And we're going to say, Lord, what do you have to say? Now, maybe that means I have to go into my room and pray. She goes to her room and, well, another room and prays. <laughs> we're going to find ourselves in the same room. <laughs> this is my room. Get out. No, it's my room. <laughs> but at some point, we're going to have to say, it's not about what I want, what you want. It's not about winning and losing. Because we've always said this in marriage. If there's a winner and a loser in your arguments, you've already both lost. You're on team you. You're team marriage. So if you're married today, you can't say I won the argument. Please don't say that because if your job is to win and beat down your opponent, which is your spouse, you are fighting yourself. We're going to win. We're both going to win here. The Lord's going to have his way. And boy, does that bruise your ego. And boy, does that smash your pride. But that's the best thing that could happen to you. So they all have to bring their egos to the room here and put them on the floor together. And he says, brothers, you know that in the early day God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So he's saying, God used my mouth, but it was God that was doing it. God made the choice. And how do I know that? Because I didn't even mean to get them saved. <laughs> I just went and preached and they all started speaking in tongues. I didn't even mean it. I said, how did they get, how did they get filled with the Spirit? They skipped all the steps. But it's what God did. He says, and God who knows the heart testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did with us. Listen to that phrase, just as he did with us. What he's saying is he did it the same way he did with us. There's no distinction. He says that here. He made no distinction between us and them. He didn't say the Gentiles are second-class Christians. He didn't say they got to go through a different school or whatever. He said he didn't make a decision. God didn't make a distinction, so how can I? Cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, 
Now, that word cleansing is important to the Jewish people, right? Because what are Gentiles? Gentiles are unclean. And he's saying he cleansed their hearts. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? In other words, none of us got to God through the law. God gave the law, but it showed us our inability to do it. It showed us our own weakness. We realized, thank God for the law, because it showed us her, his perfection, but it showed us, man, I need a Savior. Our fathers could not get to righteousness through the law. They had to get there by faith. It's the same way the Gentiles got there. He said, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way that they also are. All the people kept silent. One of the best things you can do in an argument when you're wrong is just shut up for a bit. That's what they did. They kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul. So now Barnabas and Paul get up, and they start telling what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now, we know before this that when Peter was called out to the mat for, um, for preaching to the Gentiles, that he brought two things. He brought the Scripture and said, this is what the Lord says about it. And he brought what God had done, the, the, the evidence, the signs and the wonders that God was at, at work. All of these things, those two things always go together in the, in the early church, and they go together in this church today, that the Word and the Spirit agree, right? So they're going to bring you the Scripture. They're going to say, this is not a new thing. God talked about this. And they're going to show you, and here's what God did. Here's how we saw the grace of God at work. This is what happens. After they'd stopped speaking, James answered. Uh-oh, James is talking. Now remember, James is the guy who's got the problem. At least people that came from him. Now maybe I realize some people might come out of this church and say some crazy things, and I hope that they don't say I said them. But sometimes, you know, we got to say, it was James that started the problem, started the controversy. So when he speaks, everybody's probably looking like, here's it, this is it. What's he going to say? What's James going to say? You see, if Peter and Paul and Barnabas made their ego the important thing, here's what would have happened. They would have beat down James, said, James, you can't even talk. Here's why. James, you're wrong. Here's why. But they showed honor. They showed honor to God. They showed honor to one another. And when James gets up, if he had his ego, he'd just fight just to be right. Instead, here's what he says. Brothers, listen to me. I bet when he said that, people got nervous. Uh-oh. What's he going to say? Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, so that's still Peter has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. He uses two words here that are translated into the Greek that are very important. There's a Greek word, ethnos, which means nations. And the Greeks, sorry, the Jews never used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they never used that word for themselves. They're the people of God. The other nations, those are the ethnos. So you see, that's where we get our word ethnic, right? Those are the other people, the other nations. They, they, they say it's us, it's Israel, and the nations. James says, God has taken from among the ethnos. Then he uses another word, laos, which is people. Now, this is a word they use for themselves. I realize not all of them spoke Greek, but when you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when you look at, at, at the point he's trying to make as he translates the scriptures, what he's saying here is God took from among the peoples, the nations, the Gentiles, and he made them a 
people. Now this is a word they use for themselves. We are the people of God. Peter wrote this, once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And James is saying, God took from among the ethnos, allows. God took him from among the Gentiles, a people. And he's identifying them with him. He's putting them all in the same group for his name. Oh, I love that. You see, because they're not under the name Gentile. They're not under the name Jew. They're under the name of Jesus, under the name of God. He says, with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. He begins to quote from Amos, but he also quotes from other prophets here. And he's showing you that the, this is not a new idea. This is not a new doctrine. He didn't realize it before, but God's been saying this for centuries. Can you imagine being James? I'm going to read you what he says in a minute. But can you imagine being James sitting there going and listening, listening to Peter talk, listening to Paul talk, listening to Barnabas talk, sitting there and beginning to be provoked in his own spirit and realize I'm, I was wrong about some things. I didn't realize this. But as he begins to believe it, and faith responds to God, and he goes, this is right. All of a sudden, these scriptures that he's known all his life come alive to him. And he goes, wait a minute, God's been talking about this for centuries. I treated this like it was a new heresy. I treated this like it was a new doctrine. But God's been talking about this. My dad was saved in a denomination that basically believed a lot of the gifts that are in the book here passed away. And so they preach against it from the pulpit. Those guys over there across the street are demon-possessed. <laughs> dad thought they are demon-possessed. Oh, my goodness. I started reading his Bible and going, but wait. If Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, why isn't he doing this stuff anymore? He asked his buddy, neighbor in the backyard, neighbor across the fence, Buster. He said, Buster. And Buster was, <laughs> Buster believed this stuff. He said, Buster, can you tell me about this? Can you talk to me about this? And Buster said, of course I can. Now, Buster later became a very well-known preacher. But at the time, he's just Buster. Sometimes you just got to listen to the busters in your life and just say, I thought I knew everything, but I guess I don't. Buster, what's up? And Buster began to show him some of these things, and God used that. And my dad had to choose, do I stay in the denomination that ordained me, that's paying my way to seminary? I'm in the middle of the Vietnam War. I'm classified 4D because I'm a clergy, so they can't draft me. But the minute I leave this denomination, I will become prime draftable. Is that okay with me? He said, I'd rather obey God. And I began to see people, that denomination at one time began to, was preaching, I'm not even going to name it because you don't need to know, but they were preaching against these churches, saying, they're, oh, they're of the devil, all this. But now, I can name person after person in that denomination now that believes the same thing that we're preaching right now, that's seeing the move of God in their church. Why? Because at some point they said, this is not a new heresy. It's not a new doctrine. It's what God's been saying for thousands of years, and we just need to believe it. We need to get over our ego and the name on the door, and that includes this church, friends. Get over what we've always said. Well, we've always believed this. Well, listen, if, if it comes between what you've always believed and what you now know that God is saying, and maybe you were wrong, maybe I was wrong, and we just come and say, this is what the Word says. This is what the Spirit says. Let's agree with God. 
Let's put our egos down. I'm not talking about every time a new book comes out, you got a new doctrine. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about allowing yourself to be moved by the Spirit of God. And here's what happens. He says, as the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after these things I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen. That can be translated, in fact, in the Old Testament, it's translated like the shelter, the tent of David. Now, David did have a tabernacle where he kept the Ark of the Covenant, and there's part of that that plays into it. But the bigger picture here is that if you read it, this chapter in Amos, he's talking about rebuilding the kingdom that was, had fallen down and destroyed. He's going to restore Israel. James begins to see if God's restoring Israel, he's not doing it the way I thought. He's going to do it first this way. He's going to start with us spiritually, rebuild us spiritually, and he's going to do it through the Gentiles as well. Because he says, I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. All the Gentiles who are called by my name. Listen to that. Gentiles who are called by my name. See, once you're called by his name, you're his people. So he's realizing, oh my goodness, this is in the scriptures. I can't deny it anymore. The prophets agree with this. I thought I was standing up for the prophets, but the prophets testify on their behalf. It's true. And he stands up and he says, therefore it's my judgment that we don't trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. But from things contaminated by idols and from fornication, from that which is strangled and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. What James is saying is every city these guys are in, there's a synagogue. And if we're going to get the Jews and the Gentiles to fellowship together, we need to set some ground rules. Can't eat stuff that was sacrificed to idols. Can't commit fornication with the Gentiles we're known to do. And don't eat this, because we can't eat together if you're eating this. Stuff strangled with blood. He didn't make them eat kosher. He didn't do this. But he says, if there's going to be fellowship, this is, this is what we need to do. Now, the reason James stands up and says, this is my judgment, is not because he's the leader of the church. He's not. But he's the leader of the group that had the problem. He had enough guts, grace, and courage to stand up and say, these guys are right. Do you think? That the same God that was moving in this gathering can move in this way in your family, in your church, in our city. You see, what's real easy these days is that when you get a little bit uncomfortable with your relationships, you just move on. We're a little bit uncomfortable at church. Somebody said this to me, made my kid cry, or whatever, I don't know. And rather than going to that person and working it out like Jesus said to do, we just go, it would be easier just to leave. There's another church down the block. It's good. Got great music. Great people. I know people there. Let's just leave. I know that God moves people from time to time, but I'm telling you, we've made it so easy now that we never confront our own pride. We never confront our own strife, and we just bury these things from church to church, and you carry it everywhere you go. Me and, I mean, I, I meet with other pastors in the city. We pray together. We had to put our egos down. We had to say, let's read the word together. We had to say, let's pray for one another. And you have to just put every bit of competition down. And just let God just put it at the foot of the cross. You have to put every bit of, of, of doctrinal competition down. Put it at the foot of the cross. Because if you're not willing to do that, you'll find yourself fighting against God. 
This is why I say it's one of the greatest miracles in the book of Acts. is because what we saw as possibly the end of the church became the strengthening of the church. Why? Because they got together and said, let's hear what God says. I'm going to hear it through you. You speak. Now you say your bit. And at the end of this, we're all going to say, what did God say? Let me just finish it up with this. It seemed good to the apostles and to the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren, and they sent this letter by them. They said, the apostles and the brethren who were elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who were from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we've heard some of our number to whom we've given no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us having become of one mind. I want you to hear that again. Having become of one mind. We don't all start out with one mind. What does one mind mean? It doesn't mean you're like the Borg, you know, sharing a mind. One mind means you're in agreement. We're in agreement together. We have the same goal. The Bible says, Paul said in Philippians, I pray that you'd all be of one mind, united in spirit, set on one purpose. That's what we need to be as a church. I don't want 50 Hundred, I don't want any clones of me. I don't want us all to be robots. We got different giftings. We got different personalities. We got different graces on our life. We got different people we can reach. We don't need to be a bunch of clones of each other. Can we be diverse and still be of one mind? Having one goal, united in spirit, set on the purposes of God, and say, what's God's purpose for this church? And how can the fact that you're different from me actually help that purpose? And when this happens, it says we were of one mind. But it doesn't say we were born of one mind. It doesn't say we, we just happened to be of one mind. It says we have become of one mind. We had to sit in a room and, and talk. We had to sit in a room and argue. We had to, we had to have some debate. We had some, have some moments where we probably felt offended. We, we probably felt slighted. And we probably felt uncomfortable. But it was worth it. Do you love people enough for that to be worth it? Do you love someone enough to believe what Jesus said, that if you have a problem with somebody, you go to them, you bring it up to them. If they don't receive you, then you take it up the ladder. Do you, do you love somebody enough to do that? Do you love somebody enough to let go of the problems that don't really matter? You don't like the way they sing behind you. Okay, get over it. Right? Come on, there's things you don't even need to bring up. Do you love people enough, do you love Jesus enough, it really this is the point, do you love God enough to say your body, Christ, Jesus, your body matters to me. I feel myself pulling away. I feel myself divided. I feel myself at odds. I feel myself separate. Like Peter, I'm holding myself aloof, not engaging anymore. I've been hurt. People have said things to me that have hurt me. They've done things that have hurt me. Do you love the Lord and trust the Lord enough? Try again. Is it worth it? I'll tell you, what God's doing in your life, he can't do just with you. He needs you to be part of a body. This miracle is a miracle you can experience in your life. We wanted to send you and send these men with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Men who've risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we've sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will report the same things by word of mouth. So we're going to have different people from different groups, and they're all going to say the same thing. 
For it seemed, listen to this, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourself free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. Why did he say that was so important? Why did he put food stuff in there? Because it was important that they be able to eat together. This is how they're going to do it. Not making everybody, uh, you're not going to make the, the Gentiles eat kosher or the, the, the Greeks uh, you know, or the Jews eat like Gentiles, but these are the basics we can do to fellowship. I want you to just, as we close right now, I just want you to focus on this phrase, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. This is where unity starts and ends. What is good to God? What does God want? It's not really about what I want. It's not about what you want. It's what God wants. Now, I know that's tricky because we all say, I know what God wants. I always know what God wants. I'm the one that tells you what God wants. That kind of attitude is going to make you very annoying to everyone around you. Because part of finding out what God wants is letting the other one speak. And in the body of Christ, the manifold wisdom of God is made known. The Bible says, let each one serve as God has given them grace so that... By serving, it says by serving, we're going to see a picture of the manifold. That means many shapes and many uh, colors and sizes. It's Greek word, Greek word pikolos. It's lots of shapes and sizes. The diverse manifold grace of God will be made known. And God will be glorified. I don't need you to be like me. I don't want you to be like me. I want you to be like Jesus. And when we do this, when we do this, friends, when we get together and we say, what is God saying to our church? And we're willing to listen to each other. And we're willing to be quiet when, we, when, when it's time for us to be quiet. And we're willing to hear something we haven't been willing to hear before. But I say, I want the Lord to speak through you. And I want the Lord to speak through me. We're going to find out what God has to say. And we're going to be able to say, it seems good to God, the Holy Spirit, and to us. Do you realize that we just read a chapter that had a great debate and nobody won? Nobody lost. James would have seemed like the loser, but he's the guy that gets to write the letter in the end. Right? Nobody won, nobody lost. God won. That's what he wants in his church today. Can we let the Lord win? Can we let the Lord's will be bigger than our will? Can we let the glory of God be bigger than our pride? Stand with me today. We're going to pray.